The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get into our study on prayer this evening, let's bow our heads together and go before the throne of grace. Father, we do thank you for the tremendous privilege we have as part of our priesthood that we can bring our petitions directly to you, that we have free access to your throne because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Father, as church-age believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And a result of our confession of sin, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit and fellowship with you. And we have free access to bring our prayers, our petitions, our praises to you. Father, now as we gather together to examine your word, to continue our study on prayer, we ask that uh, the Holy Spirit would teach us and make these things clear, to apply them to our lives so that we may continue our pursuit of spiritual maturity, that we might glorify you in the process. For that is our ultimate goal and desire in life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying the subject of prayer. We began at the first hour by defining prayer as the grace provision of of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, to express our adoration and praise to God, to give thanks for all the many things that we have in life, to intercede for others, to convey our personal needs and petitions, and to conduct intimate conversation with God. In the first hour or two, I talked about how man had been excluded from the presence of God because of sin. That was symbolized very dramatically at the Garden of Eden when the angels, core of cherubim, were set, set guard around the tree of life with their flaming swords keeping man from the presence of God. And that throughout the uh, Old Testament, there were, uh, prayer had to be done on the basis of a specialized priesthood. There was a patriarchal priesthood, there was the royal priesthood, and there was the Levitical priesthood. But prayer could not, the individual believer could not pray apart from going to God on the basis of a priest. And in the Old Testament, that uh, function of a mediator was done through one of these specialized priesthoods. And in the church age, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the instant of salvation, is made a royal priest. And priesthood has to do with the individual relationship to God. A prophet represents God to man. A priest represents man to God. And as believers in the church age, we do not go to God through some other human being uh, in the church. We have uh, immediate and direct access. So prayer is a grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly to God. And that was part of what we covered in the first uh, three hours yesterday. And then the second part of the, the, the definition focuses on the purpose of the communication to acknowledge sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. 
And that's the focus of tonight's Bible class. By way of review, that would be our first point. The second point that we covered was that prayer was for believers only. Because sin separates man from God, the sin issue has to be resolved on a person-to-person basis before someone has access to God. And we saw that just as in the Old Testament there was only one way to God through the one gate in the tabernacle, in the New Testament, in the church age, there is only one way to God and that is through Jesus Christ. The one way entrance in the tabernacle was a picture, a training aid, because they knew that God would provide a Messiah. So in the Old Testament, salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, although Christ, the uh, New Testament word Christos, is a translation of the Old Testament Testament word Mashiach, which means Messiah, the Anointed One, and they looked forward to the coming of God, the fulfillment, the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of the promise of God to provide a Savior. So in the Old Testament, it was faith, but the object was a future fulfillment of the promise. In the New Testament, since Christ came, we look back to the completion of salvation. The Scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So prayer is for believers only. Third, we said you do not pray to be spiritual. Spirituality is not a result of prayer. Uh, There are various uh, activities in the Christian life such as prayer, giving, witnessing, teaching, participation in service, gifts of service and things like that that people often confuse that they need to do those things and that somehow makes you spiritual. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse. Scripture teaches that those are the results of spiritual growth. They are not the cause of spiritual growth. Prayer is a privilege of our priesthood and to develop that privilege and that ability we must first grow spiritually. Our prayer life is no stronger than our spiritual life. Fourth, Prayer demands concentration, thought, and an understanding of doctrine. And we looked at several examples yesterday evening, how Moses, uh, how uh, the apostles and the early church prayed on the basis of doctrine. They utilized doctrine in constructing their petitions to God. Many times we cannot do that. Sometimes we can, and in such cases we should. At other times... Uh, The character of God may not be the issue. The reputation of God may not be the issue. Specific fulfillment of promises may not be the issue. All we can do is appeal generally to God's will, if it be thy will. So prayer demands concentration and thought. And emotion, while it may be present, is never the focus of the issue. I was reading um, in a little book by C.S. Lewis, who was a a well-known Christian apology, wrote a fun little book called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read them or not. First time I read this was probably 20 uh, some odd years ago. And um, I picked this up the other day. I was at the Half Price Bookstore in Houston and it was for a dollar. And I thought, well, I just can't pass that up. Uh, and I was thumbing through it. And, and the, if you're not, not familiar with this, screw tape is a, a, a demon. Screwtape is a, is a leader of a group of demons whose job it is, he's sort of the overseer, and it's his job to make sure these young demons fulfill their roles as tempters of Christians. And he writes these letters to his nephew Wormwood, encouraging him as a demon in his task to, to uh, gain victory over his subject who is a young believer. So when he writes, when he refers to the enemy, of course, he is referring to Jesus Christ. 
because he is the enemy of the devil and all demons. So he was writing here and he's talking about uh, prayer. And he says here, let me see if I can find my place. Um, talking about prayer, he says, When the patient is an adult, recently reconverted to the enemy's party, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him, that is, getting him away from prayer, best done by encouraging him to remember, or to think he remembers, the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray, quote, with moving lips and bended knees, but merely, quote, composed his spirit to love and indulged a, quote, sense of supplication. This is exactly the sort of prayer we want. And since it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are very far advanced in the enemy's service, clever and lazy patients can be taken in by it for quite a long time. He skips down, I'll skip down and he says, If this fails, you must fall back on a subtler misdirection of his intention. Whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, we are defeated. But there are ways of pre- preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him towards themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. The point he's making is our feelings are irrelevant to whether or not we're truly being effective in prayer or how correct our prayers are. And what often happens sometimes is we have a a subjective experience in prayer and it's wonderful. And we try to duplicate that. And before long, we get our focus on manufacturing those feelings rather than just on the objective reality of doctrine and communication with God. Often emotion is present because we may be going through an emotionally difficult time and we're, we're crying out to the Lord in the midst of our, our suffering and our heartache for His sustenance and His, His solution. But we must realize that prayer relies ultimately on doctrine, that the focus is never our feelings. The focus is always on God. We do that by keeping our prayers God-centered rather than man-centered. A fifth point of summary. We saw that prayer was mandated for every single believer. Scripture says, pray without ceasing. It's commanded of the believer to continually pray, to make it a habit pattern. Prayer should be the highest priority in our life, second only to learning Bible doctrine. Sixth, as believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our own spiritual lives. Our prayers do not fail because God fails. Our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. We fail to learn doctrine. We fail to understand the will and the plan of God. Seven, prayer uh, seven, prayer changes things. God has set aside a number of things in His plan as contingencies 
for our lives, contingent blessings that are ours, that He will give to us on the basis of our spiritual growth and also on the basis of our prayer. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not. Now, when we pray, there are various elements in our prayer. And I use a little an acronym in order to uh, remember these or to summarize these elements. And the acronym I use is CATS. C-A-T-S. The C is for confession. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The A is for adoration. To express our praise to God for who He is and what He has done. The T is for thanksgiving, to express our gratitude to God for what He has done on our behalf, for all that He has given us in our daily lives. Whether we think it's good or bad, we are to be thankful for all things. And the S is for supplication. There are two aspects of supplication. In supplication, we have a picture of the inferior coming to the superior, of the... Of the um, uh, vassal or the citizen coming to the great Lord seeking favor. Supplication, we have intercession when we pray for others and petition when we pray for ourselves. So this is going to be the outline of what we're going to cover tonight. Now, when you pray, you may have only one of these elements present. You may be praying simply for yourself, just a bullet prayer on the way to work. Uh, about the day, petition, it may be intercession as you go through the day. You remember to pray for a missionary, pray for someone at the church, someone who's sick, pray for the family member, something like that. Maybe just a prayer of thanksgiving. You're thankful that that idiot back there who doesn't know how to drive missed you. Um, that may also be a prayer, of, uh, uh, a prayer of praise. Then again, it may just be a prayer of confession because you want to make sure you're in fellowship. So you do not have to have all of these elements together every time you pray. But these are all there. You can have mixtures of these. They don't have to be in any particular order except for the fact that confession needs to be first because the Scripture says if uh, we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So that gets us into fellowship where the Lord will then hear our prayers. So prayer has any combination of these four elements. The first element is confession. Confession was something that we covered to some degree, a little bit by way of introduction Sunday morning. We saw that in the Old Testament, this was foreshadowed in the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was the temporary portable worship center for the Jews in the Old Testament. It was comprised of an outer wall of curtains with only one entrance, representing, as I stated earlier, the only way to God, that there is only one way into the presence of God. There was the tent of meeting in the middle, the holy place, divided into two segments, the inner holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There was a large veil which kept everybody out. And then in the outer room was the holy, uh, holy place where there was the table of showbread, the candlestick, and the altar of incense symbolizing the prayers of the people. Out in the courtyard were two pieces of furniture, the uh, brazen altar where sacrifices were conducted, which were uh, pictures of salvation. These foreshadowed the saving work of Christ on the cross where He died as a substitute for our sins. 
Then the second article of furniture was the uh, bronze labor, labor, which was where the priest was to wash his hands and his feet, symbolizing confession. Uh, sin as an issue was taken care of symbolically, ritually, by the sacrifice on the altar. And then the uh, daily acts of sin were taken care of, symbolized by our hands, what we do, and our feet where we go in terms of sin. And that was taken care of and represented the whole issue of confession. If the priest did not wash his hands and wash his feet before entering into the holy place, then he would die. God does not carry out halfway measures. He's not, oh, so sorry, I'm going to give you a second chance. You get one chance. And we saw how strict God was with that in the matter of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, that no man could touch it when Uzzah tried to stabilize it as it was being taken into uh, Jerusalem in uh, 2 Samuel when David was carrying it in. And instantly he died, dropped dead on the spot. Because God does not need man's help for his own stability. God is very capable of taking care of himself and providing his own stability and never allows man to help out in any way, shape, or form. So we saw that the Old Testament depicted the whole principle of confession of sin in the worship in the tabernacle and temple. Secondly, we saw this foreshadowed also in the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Again, it was portrayed and uh, in fact mandated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the self-examination before the Lord's table. Various scriptures emphasize this. Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, am I getting... Ooh, we're running out of space on the overhead. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Notice the contrast. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The wicked is, is either an unbeliever or a carnal believer. But the prayer of the upright person who is in fellowship is His delight. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine: The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. So God listens to the prayers of the believer who is in fellowship. Sin keeps a barrier, temporary barrier between God, between the believer and God, a barrier of non-fellowship. Proverbs 28.9 He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You see the dynamics of this, if I can find it. Okay. I'll just keep rolling. There we go. I see a blank spot here. When we're saved, we come to the cross. At the cross, we have salvation given to us on a permanent basis. We enter into a permanent relationship with God. So up here we have the ER, our eternal relationship with God. At that moment, we're put into, in Christ, we're members of the body of Christ. God does a number of things for us, about 40 different things permanent things that God does for us at the moment of salvation which are ours for all eternity and can never be taken away. Thirty-nine of those things are permanent. Uh, one is uh, revocable and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of salvation we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The first time we sin, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
So the top circle here represents man's eternal relationship with God, his position in Christ. Then there is the bottom circle. This represents the believer's relationship with God in time. This is our temporal fellowship, TF. The instant we're saved, we're put into fellowship with God. But the first time we sin, we're out here. This is the realm of carnality. Carnal is really an old English word that has to do with the flesh. Talk about a, and down we Mexican food down in Texas. I don't know if what you have up here can truly be called Mexican food, but they talk about chili con carne from the uh, ultimate root in Latin for carnal for the flesh it comes from 1 Corinthians 3 1 through 3. When we're out of fellowship, this is also the realm where we're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. The only way back to fellowship with God is on the basis of 1 John 1 9. Simply admitting or acknowledging our sin. The basis is the finished work of Christ on the cross. At the cross, all of our sins were paid for completely and fully. So all we have to do is admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father and we are instantly forgiven. There was no sin you or I could ever commit that was not known by God the Father in eternity past. Billions and billions of years ago, God knew every single sin that we're ever going to commit, even those sins that really shock you. The sins that you commit that you will surprise yourself and the sins that somebody else in this church will commit that will really shock and offend you are sins that God knew about billions and billions of years ago and He's neither shocked nor surprised and He imputed those sins to Jesus Christ on the cross where they were completely and totally paid for. They are no longer the issue. So if God has dealt with the issue, then God has all, then that's not something that you should hold against yourself in terms of ongoing guilt or something that you should hold against another believer in the congregation because of their failures. Because while their realm of failure may shock you, there's something in your realm of failure and weakness in your sin nature that may in turn shock them. And you're going to want to be treated just as graciously when you fail as you treat other people when they fail. That does not mean that there aren't consequences. David had to go through years and years of divine discipline and horrible consequences in his family life because of his uh, sins of adultery and murder and cover-up and all that went with it because of his particular role and function at that time. And he, uh, while he was forgiven, he still went through the divine discipline and all of the consequences as a result of that. But once he was back in fellowship, it was no longer suffering for discipline. It was transformed into suffering for blessing. Now, the reason we all sin is because we have a sin nature. Now, this is a real important issue. There are many Christians who believe that after you're saved, the sin nature is not quite as bad and not quite as powerful as it was before you were saved. And that's just hogwash. There is nothing you can do as an unbe- you could do as an unbeliever that you won't do as a believer or can't do as a believer. All believers, because of the sin nature, are capable of any and all sins they commit as an unbeliever. The sin nature is an inherent defect, a capacity and a propensity to violate the perfect righteousness of God. It's an inherent defect, it is a capacity, and it is a propensity, a natural inclination to violate the perfect righteousness of God. And it is an, the sin nature is an integral part of every human being that resides in the cell structure of the human body. 
The sin nature has various aspects to it, which I don't have time to go into tonight because that's uh, not part of our study. But if I were here on a regular basis, um, we would be taking time out to go into the details of the sin nature to make sure everybody understands that. At birth, God imputes Adam's original sin to the genetically transferred sin nature which you have in your body at the point of physical birth. That results at the point of, at the point of physical birth that we are all born spiritually dead and we are totally depraved. That word total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we can be, but that every aspect, the totality of our nature is affected and impacted by the sin nature. And this is true for every human being except for Jesus Christ because the sin nature is passed down through the male and not through the female. When the soul is imputed to biological life at birth, the soul is entirely corrupted by this inescapable, intrinsic human flaw. The sin nature is called the old man in Ephesians 4.22, the Adamic nature of the flesh in Romans 8.3-4, and the principle of sin in Romans 7.8-20. Those verses again were uh, Ephesians 4.22, uh, Romans 8, 3 through 4, and Romans 7, uh, 8 through 20. When the sin nature is in control out here, out here you're under the control of the sin nature, and the believer's spiritual life begins to dry up, begins to atrophy. You begin to reverse your spiritual growth, and you begin to lose your, your remembrance of doctrine, your control of, of the truth. And if you stay out there over a, very, over a long time, period of time, then eventually what happens is you become a baby believer again and you have to start your spiritual growth all over. The longer the believer is out of fellowship, the more his thinking and his lifestyle will take on the characteristics of the unbeliever. The Bible calls this backsliding. It's also been called uh, reversionism because it's a reverse process that takes the believer backward through the uh, stages of spiritual growth. When a believer uh, is backslidden, he will look often like and act and think and talk like an unbeliever. And for all external purposes, you can't tell him any different, can't tell him apart from the unbeliever. But he never loses his salvation. He may get into heaven with a loss of rewards. And as 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 indicates, he will get into heaven yet as through fire. He will just have a little smoky scent to his robes and uh, he's just barely made it in. Uh, and... Uh, I think there will be great shame and sorrow on his part at the judgment seat of Christ because he will see his failure to uh, fulfill God's plan for his life and all the blessings he missed out on. But God will wipe away every tear and these things will be remembered no more as we enter into eternity. The only solution then when the believer is out here in carnality is 1 John 1, 9, principle of confession of sin. If we look at 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins... Now, people get very confused over the whole principle of confession. They think somehow you have to manufacture certain feelings in order to impress God with the way we feel about sin. But God is never impressed by how we feel about things. God is impressed with His particular position on our sin. It doesn't matter how we feel, but how God feels. And at the point of confession, we are admitting and acknowledging our sins. When a murderer comes into a courtroom and he admits his guilt, it doesn't matter whether he's glad he did it or sorry he did it in terms of, of the legal process. If he admits his guilt and, and pleads guilty, then uh, he will be treated accordingly. If we confess, 
Confession means admission or acknowledging our sins. We'll see this a, later, a little later on when we look at Psalm 32. We confess our sins. He is faithful. That is, God is faithful. He will always do the same thing because He is immutable. God is faithful and He is just. He is righteous. He, uh, he has an absolute standard to which He conforms and as the judge, He applies that to our case because Jesus Christ's death has been imputed to us through positional truth and retroactive positional truth. We are forgiven of our sins and we are then cleansed from all unrighteousness. Not just the sins we admitted, but all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, we can't always remember everything, every sin we committed, especially if we have not kept short accounts. If it's been three or four weeks since we last rebounded, last confessed our sins, then it takes some time to remember all of them. And some of us do not have good memories, and so we won't list them all. Sometimes we do things that we aren't aware, uh, that we're not aware they're sins. And so when we confess the known sins and the remembered sins, then God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And at that instant, we are restored to fellowship. Wait a minute, get the right one. We're restored to fellowship. We're back here in a position where we can grow. Just because we're back in fellowship doesn't mean we automatically grow. This is a position where we can now use the doctrine in our souls as divine good. And we can begin to grow and mature towards uh, spiritual maturity and glorification of God. If we, um, if we sin again, we're back out of fellowship. All we do is instantly admit our sins to God and we're back in fellowship and continue to learn doctrine and continue to apply the doctrine that we've stored in our soul. Now, for an example of a prayer of confession, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of confession. The background is that David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he attempted to cover it up and had her husband murdered in battle so that it would not look like murder. He did a number of other things in the process and, uh, com- and stayed out of fellowship for about a year. And God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. When David had been confronted by, by, uh, by Nathan, David's confession is given in 2 Samuel 12:13. It's very simple. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now that's the essence of David's confession. But it's portrayed a little more graphically in several psalms, specifically Psalm 51. David had time to meditate on what had happened and on his plea for divine mercy. And he recorded this in a hymn, of, of a, a penitential hymn to God. Psalm 51.1 begins uh, that little uh, superscript that you have in your um, English Bible that looks like it's an editorial insertion is really the Word of God. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This is his appeal to the grace of God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy what? Thy loving kindness. Very important Hebrew word there, chesed, which refers to God's gracious, faithful love. It's a powerful word. It's packed with many different uh, nuances. Thy loving kindness. Be gracious to me according to thy loving kindness, thy faithful covenant love. It's on the basis of God's promises that He has made because of His justice and His righteousness. According to the greatness of thy compassions, blot out my transgressions. Now this word blot out is a very strong word in the Hebrew. It's the word matzah. M 
M-A-T-Z-A-C-H. Matzach. It's the cow imperative and it means to blot out or to obliterate from the memory. To completely eradicate, erase, or expunge. To completely eradicate, erase, or expunge. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 7.22 when God blotted out all of the human race through, the flood, through Noah's flood. It's also used in Exodus chapter 32, the prayer of Moses that we saw yesterday, uh, that God would blot, uh, uh, blot, that Moses prayed that God would blot Moses himself out of his book if God went back, were to go back on his promise to Israel. Moses wanted to be completely blotted out of God's book. It means to erase, eradicate, or expunge. So what we learn from this is that David is praying that you will erase and expunge all of my transgressions. At the point of confession, God expunges the record. He eradicates. He takes out his eraser and he erases all of those sins and they're completely removed. Therefore, if they're removed and they're no longer an issue with God, then they should no longer be an issue with you. You do not need to feel guilty over that. That's another sin. You're just compounding sin with sin. If you've done something and it so shocked you or disappointed you in yourself and now you, you confess your sin, but you just feel so bad about it. Now you feel guilty. You're out of fellowship again because you're not trusting God. You're not continuing to trust God. It's forgiven. God's forgetting it and moving on. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. If God is not going to remember your sins after confession, then why are you so arrogant as to remember your sins and to continue on a guilt trip? All that's doing is retarding your own spiritual life. Once God forgives us, the slate is completely wiped clean. God no longer remembers the sin. And for us to do so is the height of arrogance and blasphemy. Psalm 103.12 is a very strong verse. You ought to memorize some of these verses. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. That's how far God removes those sins. They are no longer an issue. David goes on in Psalm 51.2. His appeal to God, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Now, the Hebrew here is very, very illustrative. The word is kabas. K-A-B-A-S. And it's in the P-A-L, which is the intensive stem. It's an imperative. This is not a command to God, but an imperative of request from an inferior to a superior. He's pleading with God. The, the word originally meant to make something clean through laundering, taking that cloth and taking it down to the river, beating it with a rock till all the impurities were out of it. It was a word that's used of ritual cleansing. It's a word that was used in a passage we looked at yesterday in Exodus 19, verses 10 and 14, when God was going to speak to the nation Israel on Mount Sinai. And the nation is down in the valley. And for three days they have to wash their clothes. That's the same word. Drive out those impurities to purify themselves ritually before they came into God's presence. It is also the word that is used of cleansing garments that had been contaminated by leprosy. And often in the Old Testament, leprosy is a, uh, is a visual image of sin and the contamination of sin and the contagiousness of sin. 
And so this, this imagery of, of washing and pounding out all the impurities in the cloth is a picture of how God cleanses us from sin. And this whole imagery with the leprosy behind it is going to be, is, is uh, very, runs through all the verses here in Psalm 51. Later, David says, purify me with hyssop. Hyssop was, a, was something like a sponge type material that they would use in cleaning out fabric. And it was used uh, ritually to clean out garments of someone who was a leper to drive out those impurities. So David is saying, just drive out all of those, all this contagious sin that has contaminated my soul. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here we have the Hebrew word tahar. T-A-H-A-R. And that has the idea to cleanse or to purify. And when this word was translated, the Hebrew word was translated by the Jews into the uh, Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, they used the word katharizo. This is the same word that is found in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, katharizo, to purify us from all unrighteousness. So the words that are used in 1 John 1, 9 are words that reach all the way back to Exodus, all the way back throughout the Old Testament. They're rich with, with an imagery and a history behind them speaking of how God cleanses the believer from sin. So they are, they, in the Old Testament, had to do a ceremonial cleansing so the priest could come into the presence of God by following the procedures of washing his hands, washing his feet. Psalm 51.3, David says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned. Now the principle here is that when we sin, no matter what human being may be wrong, and David hurt a lot of people in his various sins, but when he, when he confesses, he doesn't say, well, you know, it hurt her, and it hurt him, and it hurt this person, it hurt that person. He says, against thee and thee only. Why? Because it is God's law, it is God's standard, it is God's righteousness that is what is violated. It's not human righteousness that's violated. It's not somebody else's righteous standard that's violated. It is God's righteous standard that is violated. When we sin, no matter who is wrong, ultimately all sin is against God. And since He is the Supreme Court judge of the universe, He is the one who has the right to judge us. David says, Against thee, thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. In verse 5, David goes on, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This does not mean that procreation is a sinful act. This means that in procreation, the sin nature is transferred from the, from the father to the children. And that is, we inherit the sin nature. It is transmitted genetically. In sin, my mother conceived me. This is synonymous parallelism, building out the point that sin nature is passed from one generation to another. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me. Here we get this cleansing idea again. Purify me with hyssop. Picks up the imagery of clean, the cleansing of the leper. And I shall be clean. Wash me. The same word used again that we saw earlier. And I will be whiter than snow. The imagery of cleansing, washing, goes on and on throughout this psalm. Make me to hear joy and gladness. See, when we're out here, out of fellowship... In carnality, we do not share the joy and happiness of the Lord. We do not have the joy of our salvation. 
And David is going to, with, re, with his confession, is going to be restored to fellowship and he is going to once again share in the joy and the gladness of the Lord. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Now in Psalm 32, he speaks about how he was so overcome with guilt and misery that his bones ached. He was in such a state of depression and guilt over his sin. So he's looking for physical restoration to the effects of sin in his own life. He prays to God in verse 9, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, the removal of guilt, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then in verse 11, Do not cast away from me thy presence, and do not take away thy Holy Spirit. Now, never pray that prayer as a church-age believer. The Holy Spirit indwells every New Testament believer. In the Old Testament, very, very few believers had the Holy Spirit. They were endued with the Holy Spirit. It was a temporary giving of the Holy Spirit, not for the function of the spiritual life, for the function of leadership and other functions having to do with with the, uh, the priesthood and temple worship. Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit to give him wisdom in, in uh, building the articles of furniture that would go into the tabernacle. Other leaders like uh, Jephthah and Gideon and other judges and prophets were given the Holy Spirit for, to perform particular leadership and administrative tasks in Israel. But it was, the role of the Holy Spirit was not in the direction of the spiritual life of the Old Testament, but for leadership of the nation. So we are not to pray this prayer. We have the Holy Spirit given to us on a permanent basis. And then David closes by saying, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That is the first of our four parts of prayer. Confession. The four parts are cats, confession, C. The second is adoration or praise. In praise, we extol the grandeur and the magnificence of God by focusing on who He is and what He has done. We extol the grandeur and magnificence of God by focusing on who He is and what He has done. A simple approach to this in your own personal prayer life is to just list the attributes of God. God is sovereign. He is righteous. He is just. He is love. He is eternal life. He is omniscient omnipotent, omnipresent. He is veracity or truth. And He is immutable. And then list by each one from your own experience in your own life how that attribute of God has been demonstrated in your own life. And then read that back to God as a prayer of praise. This is often what you find in the praise psalms. You can relate those attributes of God to what He has done in human history, what He has done in, our own, in your own life. You can do that in a number of different ways. Um, You can read through the praise psalms and make them your own. Let's turn to one particular praise psalm just to see how this is done in Psalm 19. Open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Praise psalms psalms have three elements, usually, sometimes only two. There is a call to praise. There is a cause for praise where the psalmist gives the reasons for his praise of God usually related to the greatness of God or God's grace, and he amplifies that through specific illustrations. And then he concludes with an exhortation to the congregation to praise the Lord. Examples of praise psalms are Psalm 19, Psalm 33, Psalm 19, Psalm 33, Psalm 36, Psalm 105, Psalm 111, Psalm 113, 
Psalm 117 and Psalm 135. If you want a very short example of a, of a praise psalm, go to Psalm 117, which reads, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all people. For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. That's the whole psalm. Very simple, very concise. Psalm 19 is a cause for praise because of the revelation of God's glory. It begins in the first six verses with a a praise for the revelation of God's glory and power throughout the creation. In verses 7 through 11, there is the cause of praise in the revelation of God's glory and power in His Word. And there is a conclusion in verses 12 through 14, a request that God's revelation would fulfill its destiny in transforming David's spiritual life into that which is pleasing to God. Let's just read a little bit of it to get a, to get a sense of it. The beginning is the cause for praise, the revelation of God's glory and power in creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. This is what theologians call general revelation. It is non-verbal revelation. It is the external witness to the power of God mentioned in Romans 1, 18 and 19. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run His course. It is, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then he shifts to the, to the cause of praise for the revelation of God's glory and power in special revelation in God's perfect, infallible, and inerrant Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Notice the priority placed upon the value of Scripture. It is more desirable than gold. When Bible doctrine becomes the highest priority in your life and you rearrange the priorities in your life, you rearrange your schedule so that you can be in Bible class, so that you can learn God's Word. You cannot grow spiritually if you're not applying God's Word. You cannot apply God's Word if you do not know God's Word. And you cannot know God's Word if you do not take the time and the energy and the discipline and the concentration necessary to study it, to learn it, to make it a part of your life. And that means rearranging your schedule to be in Bible class and to learn God's Word. And then the remainder of the psalm is a call to others to share in this praise. I'll just read uh, those verses. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. David is calling for God to fulfill the destiny of his revelation in transforming his spiritual life. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Must have been a little prophetic at that point. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, that is, my mind, 
Let this meditation of my mind be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. So the second part of our praise is praising God in, in terms of adoration. The third part of our acronym of CATS, C for confession, A for adoration, and then T for thanksgiving. We are to give thanks to the Lord in all things and for all things. No matter what the situation might be, no matter how much it has broken your heart, no matter how much suffering is entailed, no matter how much it may not be what you want it to be, in all things we are to give thanks. I have a few points here, eight points, about thanksgiving. First of all, a person cannot be happy unless he is thankful for everything he has. If you are not thankful, then you are ungrateful. If you are ungrateful, then you are being motivated by bitterness and self-centeredness and arrogance. To the degree that we're motivated by bitterness and self-centeredness and arrogance, we cannot be happy because we're focusing on what we don't have instead of what we have. A person cannot be happy unless he is thankful for everything he has. When you're not grateful to God, then you will be miserable. Ingratitude always accompanies the rejection of doctrine. It always accompanies a spiritual problem. When you are ungrateful, you have a spiritual problem. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Point two. Since circumstance, people, and emotions always change, so will your happiness if they are based on circumstances, people, and emotions. When you chain yourself to circumstances, you will enslave your emotions to things beyond your control. When you chain yourself to circumstances and base your happiness on circumstances, then you will enslave your emotions to things outside of your control. Three, the result of this is an emotional roller coaster that destroys your spiritual life. You will end up bitter, frustrated, angry, depressed, and you will be a great source of misery to all of those around you. So if you want to be a source of misery to all your family and friends, then just be ungrateful. Fourth, the solution is to realize that everything we have is from God. Your home is from God. Your spouse, your family, your parents, your children, the food in your pantry, the air you breathe, the car you drive, the church you have. These are all from God and we should be thankful for those things because ultimately God controls all things. The minute something goes wrong and you begin to question, we begin to, the minute something goes wrong, we often begin to question God. But when everything is alright and going smoothly, we forget that God is the source of everything we have. Appreciation to God for everything in our life is the key to the real joy of our salvation. Sixth, or fifth, you cannot be humble and ungrateful at the same time. Humility and ingratitude are mutually exclusive. Gratitude always accompanies humility and true happiness. Sixth, gratitude is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in making the benefits of our unique spiritual life of the church age pleasing to the mind. Gratitude is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in making the benefits of our unique spiritual life in this church age pleasing to the mind. Seven, 
Gratitude is appreciation of all that God's grace has done for us. So we cannot be grateful without grace orientation. We must understand grace. In fact, in the Latin, the root for gratitude and grace are the same, is the same root. There's a direct relationship between gratitude and understanding grace. Therefore, point A, your degree of gratitude toward God is directly related to how much doctrine you have in your soul. The Scriptures mandate us in terms of giving thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which was quoted already, pray without ceasing, is directly followed in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 by saying, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what God's will for your life is? Part of it is giving thanks. Ephesians 5.20 states, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. That particular verse is just two verses after Ephesians 5.18, which commands the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there is a cause and effect relationship expressed in those verses. The believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit gives thanks for, for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.7 says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Colossians 1.12, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 2.7, devote, or 4.7, uh, de, uh, Colossians 4.2, Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And 2 Corinthians 2.4 But thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Thanksgiving glorifies God which is the ultimate purpose of prayer. Psalm 32 is one example of a thanksgiving psalm. Other thanksgiving psalms that you can take the time to read later on. Psalm 30 Psalm 32, Psalm 34, Psalm 40, Psalm 92, Psalm 105, 107, and 118. Psalm 32 is another expression of David's thanksgiving after Psalm 51 when he confessed his sin to God. In Psalm 32, David expresses his praise to God and his gratitude to God for delivering him from his sin. That's a very important psalm. I just want to read a couple of verses from it. Psalm 32. He begins by praising God. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then we get a description of what it feels like to be out of fellowship. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, that may not be true in many cases if you're really reveling in your sin like the prodigal son out in the pigsty. But at some point, it catches up with all of us. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. What a tremendous word picture that is. I don't know if you get that fever heat up here, but down in Houston... We get that down there when it's 104 degrees and about a 90% humidity. And when you step outside, it just feels like the sky is pressing down on you like a hot iron. And that's what he's picturing here. You just don't want to do anything. 
He's wasting away in guilt and depression. What was his response? Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin. Notice that. He didn't feel sorry. He did feel sorry. He was going through a lot of misery. But that's not the point of his, his confession. I acknowledge my sin to thee and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. So Psalm 32 is an expression of the thanksgiving David had for his uh, forgiveness for his sin. Cats is confession, adoration, thanksgiving, and the final one is supplication. Supplication. Supplication deals with two things. Intercession, prayer for others, and petition, prayer for oneself. And that is going to be the thrust of what we're going to cover tomorrow night in Bible class. We're going to look at what we are to pray for and go through various things in Scripture that we're to pray for in terms of supplication, intercession for our nation, intercession for church leaders, intercession for friends and family, for the sick, and then we will also be looking at things that we're to pray for for ourselves. And we will begin tomorrow night by looking at the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit because if this is their, one of their primary ministries during this age, then that just stresses the importance for us of the doctrine of intercession. So let us bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight, that we've had this opportunity to study it, that we have been challenged by these truths related to prayer and our own prayer lives, and the importance that You give to prayer, and that we are reminded that there are things that we do not have because we do not pray for them. And so, Father... We pray that as we remember these things, the Holy Spirit would drive them deep into our souls and that He would bring them to our remembrance and we might apply them regularly as a part of our spiritual life and our priesthood. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.